Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, November 11th. You know, if Democrats lose the House, they may have New York to blame. And that's the headline of a New York Times article by Nicholas Fandos, who will join us in a minute. If Democrats lose the House, they may have New York to blame. It's one of the more unusual and consequential things that happened this election day. The Democratic coalition basically held in congressional races across the country, despite inflation and Biden's unpopularity and the usual changeover of power during a president's first midterm elections, right? We don't know the final outcome yet, but if Republicans take the House majority, it will be from basically picking up the five seats they needed to flip it by a hair. And here's the kicker. They've already picked up four of those seats in New York, and we're not talking some deep red rural areas way upstate. The pickups were in districts in the Hudson Valley, on Long Island, and even in Queens. Progressive Democrats are blaming one of their own, in part, Mayor Eric Adams, for overplaying the extent of crime in New York City, as the progressives see it, and for latching on to bail reform as a public safety threat, despite no data, they say, to back that up. The result, say the progressives, Adams gave the Republicans the false veneer of bipartisanship and the false veneer of credibility for their biggest campaign talking point. Now, for the mayor's part, he says, no, no way. He's just calling reality as he sees it. New Yorkers were concerned about crime, and their mayor is responding to their concern. Who should be at fault? Those who ignored the concern. Mayor Adams yesterday. So what happened in the Hudson Valley on Long Island and in Northeast Queens? Why did the Republicans pick up four of the five seats they need to flip the House in the New York City area of all places. With us now, Nicholas Fandos, New York Times Metro political reporter, who's especially well-placed for this because he previously covered Congress, and Larry Levy, executive dean for suburban studies at Hofstra University, right smack dab in the middle of Long Island in Hempstead. Larry also spent decades previously as a reporter for the island's newspaper, Newsday. Nicholas and Larry, thanks for coming on. Welcome back, both of you, to WNYC. Thanks for having me. Good morning, Brian. And let's just run down this list and name the names for our listeners who don't know specifically, even might not know specifically yet who your next member of Congress is. Congressional District 3 in Northeast Queens and Long Island's North Shore, which has been represented by Democrat Tom Suozzi, will now be represented by Republican George Santos. District 4 in Nassau County, which has had Democrat Kathleen Rice, went to Republican Anthony D'Esposito. North of the city, the district immediately north of the city in Westchester stayed in Democratic hands with Congressman Jamal Bowman reelected. Further north, things are more divided. Democrat Pat Ryan got reelected, but Democratic Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, the leader of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, it was his job to lead holding the House for the whole party— 
he got defeated by Republican Mike Lawler and Republican Mark Molinaro won an open seat. Now, that Molinaro seat is District 19, which is too far north to really be considered a New York City suburb. But congratulations, Woodstock, you now have a Republican congressman. Uh, But the biggest story is that Long Island, which has had two Democratic members of Congress, now has none. So, Larry Levy at Hofstra, let's start with you. What really happened on Long Island in this election? Well, what happened uh, a couple days ago uh, really started a year ago. Uh, Voters in Nassau County and to some extent Suffolk County were absolutely primed for the message that Republicans were very sharp in delivering. Uh, In in the local races, you may remember, uh, Republicans ran the table. They swept out a lot of uh, uh, Democrats, including some who came out immediately against so-called bail reform. Um, They uh, uh, so so and Republicans just rode that message into the next year. The only thing they substituted was uh, inflation for taxes. Last year it was it was crime and taxes, uh, taxes being an old, old standby, Republican suburban campaigns. And uh, this year it was inflation. So, you know, this was an electorate that already had bought into uh, the messaging and they were able to uh, the Republicans were able to kind of generate, uh, continue the momentum and even generate more. And that's one of the reasons. I think there are some other factors, but I'll, I'll stop there for a second. Let, let me stay with that. And yes, that's definitely a little relevant historical context. Uh, recent, recent history, last year, the Republicans did very well on the island in the local elections. And so, yeah, that carried over to Congress. But nationally in the exit polls, Larry, inflation was the runaway top concern for Republican voters Abortion rights was the runaway top concern for Democratic voters. Crime was only named as the top issue by around 15 percent in either party nationally. Do you know if that was different on Long Island? I don't have precise numbers on that, but you know, the people who live in Nassau County and, and, and again, to some extent, Suffolk, are immersed in the New York City media, uh, where particularly on television, it's still the old uh, a line, if it bleeds, it leads. So crime is always in front of them. And a lot of people commute to the city. And, and you know, the reality is that whatever the statistics showed, there was a, a perception backed up by what people at least superficially saw during the pandemic that things were starting to get out of control. And really what it comes down to is, is you know, suburbanites in general are very much attuned to questions of personal and financial security. And you may say, well, so does everybody anywhere. But when, when you have most of your life savings in, in your home, you know, where your neighborhood's at, what's going on around you, it becomes m- much more acute. And especially when you moved out to the suburbs for that sense of security. And uh, uh, so, so it, it, but in New York, again, it, it, was, it was the constant drumbeat that's, that was being in, you know, beat into them about crime and in taxes and spending again is very acute when, when you are overinvested, when you're paying really more than you can afford to live uh, in, in a house in the suburbs. Uh, that's why taxes have always resonated. Inflation just spins that up a little more. And I think that in New Yorkers, because of the high cost of living here more than in other places, Long Islanders, particularly with the highest property taxes on the planet, uh, and a, a slight uptick in crime where they live, but a, 
perception of a much bigger one in the city right next door. I think it was a toxic mix that was different than other parts of the country. So, Nicholas Fandos, your Times article quotes Democratic strategist Howard Wolfson, who says it's infuriating that a night as good as it was for Democrats nationally is undone by arrogance and incompetence here. What kinds of arrogance and incompetence is he referring to? I think he principally meant two things. So one of them is what we've just been talking about, and that's uh, crime and this particular issue of bail, which is uh, a complicated picture, actually. But his point was, you know, there were warning signs in 2021 uh, for Democrats, particularly on Long Island and in parts of, uh, um, you know, Upper Westchester. Uh, and, you know, they ignored that. They didn't they f- didn't figure out how to neutralize it as a political issue, whether that was through legislative action or messaging. Um, but the other piece was around the, the redistricting process here in New York, which you know, I'm sure you remember well, but we should probably step back a few months and, and to the beginning of this year when Democrats, you know, who were in control of everything in Albany thought they were going to be able to draw the line themselves and put in place and actually passed a set of maps that really tilted the playing field towards their party. Um, if you remember, this was, you know, the map that gave us the Staten Island to Park Slope District, um, among others, yeah. which um, would have done a lot to well, they thought potentially helped Democrats pick up seats in New York, which would have offset Republican gains elsewhere around the country. Um, of course, it was challenged in court, the state's highest court, um, with many Democratic Cuomo appointees on it, struck the map down and had a special master draw a replacement that drawed a much more level playing field across the country um, that set Democrats up to really be across the state, know, across the state. I'm sorry, um, which then you know, helps lead to where we are now, but um, where Republicans, not Democrats, are picking up those seats. But, you know, the the other thing that I think it's just worth saying is that that may have affected the numbers, you know, one or two seats in either direction. But, you know, when Democrats are performing as badly as they did on Long Island, I'm not sure a gerrymander really would have saved some of these seats. The um, New York Four, the, the South Nassau seat, President Biden won that by 14 points two years ago. And it looks like Despacito is going to win it by four. I mean, that's an 18 point swing. That's not, you know, gerrymanders are done to, to make a seat plus 14 D. Um, if you're not able to win there, um, you have something of a bigger problem. So I think, you know, these two, um, kind of factors, the redistricting and the underperformance, which we haven't talked about yet, but I think has something to do with the competitive governor's race here too, um, really conspired, uh, against the Democrats. And certainly the Republican for governor, Lee Zeldin, was running on almost a single issue, which was crime. Um, and Nicholas, your article mentions that in some red states where there was also partisan redistricting by the legislature, but to favor Republicans, the courts there let those lines stand. So how much is this a story of unilateral disarmament by the blue state of New York if the Republicans win Congress by a seat or two? I think it's it's uh, totally fair um, to conclude that, and that's an important aspect here. I, I, you know, it's, it's one of those situations where truly the more you look at this, there is uh, blame to go to basically everybody in the redistricting process in New York going back a, a decade to when, you know, the, the voters of New York adopted a constitutional amendment that many people thought was flawed from the start. 
um, that it's a deal struck by Andrew Cuomo and the Senate Republicans and the Assembly at the time. Um, you know, up until uh, this year when, you know, others would argue, you know, the voters were clear, they made partisan gerrymander un- gerrymandering unconstitutional, and, you know, the legislators in Albany attempted to do something that sure as hell looked like a partisan gerrymander. Um, and so that was going to get knocked down. But as you say, in other states, uh, the courts allowed those to stand and, and the judges here uh, did not. So, um, you know, here we are. I guess you can blame the lawmakers, the judges, the former governor, the current governor, probably the National Party. I mean, you can everybody's got a slice of this. The lack of coattails uh, uh, by, by uh, Governor Hochul uh, was significant, at least in the closer races. Uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, Republicans who owe their jobs basically to Lee Zeldin's campaign. Um, I think he squeezed about as much out of the the, the sponge as he could have, considering uh, he, he was running against an upstater, which Republicans need to really run up the score, uh, and and a Long Island where you know Democrats actually have an enrollment edge, and he got winning by fifteen percent or so is again about as well as anybody could do. But uh, it's possible that if Hochul ran five points better, uh, Laura Gillen would have had enough juice to hold the fourth district. Um, yeah, and, the Kathleen and, uh, Rice district. Some of the ones. You know, one number I always look for after congressional elections that I haven't been able to find yet for this year, and I wonder if either of you knows it, is the total percentage of votes for each party nationally compared to the percentage of House seats won. In other words, let's say if a majority of Americans voted for Democrats, but Republicans wind up with a majority of seats, then gerrymandering, redistricting, um, perverts democracy. And that has happened in some election cycles. Do either of you know if that happened this year? I think that um, given the way that returns are counted more slowly on the West Coast, that number actually does right now still look like favorites kind of more in the Republican column, but that will probably even out um, over the next week or so as mail-in ballots are counted slowly. So I don't think we know exactly where it will stand, but there's no doubt that um, Republicans nationally entered this election with probably a three to five seat advantage from gerrymandering. Um, and so Democrats would have kind of had to outperform, I think, to win uh, a majority, outperform as compared to, you know, say a national popular vote. Larry, you wanted to add to that? Uh, yeah. I, historically, if, if I remember correctly, and if a political science professor wants to call up and tell me I'm wrong, it's fine. But uh, historically, House seats, Republican and Democrat vote, when you add it all up, are pretty even because, um, you know, the, the number of competitive seats has been reduced down to 30 or, or 40, and the rest of them are pretty much split. And so you get turnout, heavy, heavy Democratic in blue dis- deep blue districts, heavy uh, Republican turnout in red. Uh, it's in United States Senate seats where where Democrats it, it just like uh, it, it tend to um, have more aggregate votes than Republicans because of big states versus small states. The other thing that we, we haven't talked about is there was you know a historic level of outside spending in this race. Um, I think $20 million spent on Zeldin's behalf alone. Hochul obviously raised a lot of money and put up her own TV ads. But and Hochul outspelled, to be Zeldin. fair, to be fair to the Republicans, the Democrats outspent them, or at least Hochul outspent Zeldin, or am I wrong? 
Well, at the end of the day, we basically got to parity, and actually oh. the Republicans were spending more in the last two weeks uh-huh. um, on TV than Democrats were. But what I was the point I was going to make is Hochul spent a lot of her money um, on ads about abortion and about Trump, and all of the Zeldin spending, you know, pretty much. I mean, there was some about corruption, there was some about taxes around Hochul, but most of it was attacking the governor um, around crime and public safety. Um, and so there was just a disparity in terms of, you know, where the the money messaging was um, between the two parties. Hochul was talking about about gun control um, on the debate stage. And then, you know, the last couple of weeks, she had ads that were talking about it, too. But, you know, if you look overall, it was just, you know, one voice was speaking more loudly, uh, louder for longer, I think, on this issue than the other. And so, you know, it, it kind of um, got the better share or the bigger share of that conversation. So what happens now on criminal justice law? Based on reporting out today, it looks like things could actually go either more right or more left. So listeners, listen to these two contrasting stories, and we'll get our guests' takes. Politico New York reports both Hochul and Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty on Thursday said they wanted to have conversations to make sure that New Yorkers feel protected within the state's criminal justice laws, though it said neither laid out how, but it makes it sound like, okay, we hear you, we're going to do something. But the news organization, The City, reports today that the pressure for action on criminal justice won't just come from the right. That article says, with the threat of Lee Zeldin's campaign gone, criminal justice reformers are ready to push Hochul on elder parole, her promise to overhaul the clemency process, enforcing a new ban on solitary confinement that's been routinely ignored, and more. So that's a quote from the news organization, The City. So, Nicholas, do you see the more dominant political force now as from the right or the left on state criminal justice policy? You know, to be completely frank, I don't think we know at this point. And I think when somebody like, you know, when Hochul is winning by a narrow margin, each group can claim to have helped put you over the edge. You know, progressives did a lot, the Working Families Party, to get out votes for her in New York City. Um, but moderates like Adams also did a lot for her. And, and so they're all going to be trying to basically, you know, cash in their chits in the next couple of years. I think that, um, you know, if you listen to what Hochul is saying and what she is not saying, you know, I think there's an alternative world where she could come out of this election, look at all the things we've been talking about and say, I am absolutely, absolutely going to, you know, start the year in Albany or forces to have a discussion about the bail law and some of these other changes that have been made in recent years. Um, you know, I know the legislature is not interested in doing that, but we're going to do it. Um, she's not saying that. And there is a, a strong vested interest, I think, on behalf of the legislative leaders, Carl Heastie and Andrea Stewart Cousins, um, to defend, you know, the laws that are on the books, basically, who, you know, they feel um, are being unfairly demagogued um, and on balance have, have made the criminal justice system fairer uh, and not made crime uh, much worse in New York. So I I'm, you know, personally, I, I don't really expect a lot of movement one way or the other on this. You know, whether the governor decides that, that some of the other, you know, reforms um, in clemency and other areas that you're talking about, um, you know, would be appropriate and, and politically not so electric uh, to pursue, you know, that's another question and, and perhaps she'll do that. But, you know, I think on, on bail, I, I'm not expecting any great movement, at least right out of the gate here. Larry, could there hey, Brian, be... Brian, I have to jump in a second, but just wanted to make one sure, point go ahead. Before, I, before I do. Oh, you uh, got to go, right. Kathy, yeah, Kathy Hochul uh, uh, will start the year 
as arguably one of the weaker governors because of the lack of coattails. There may be some resentment. There may be a perception that she doesn't really represent the, you know, the voters of, of the state in, in a way that others who won by larger margins in their own districts. By the same token, there are now, as a result of the losses of the suburban moderates in the state Senate, I don't believe they have a supermajority anymore. So that puts her in a position of strength. And she has the old you know, Pataki versus Silver budgetary powers, which are like nothing that any other governor in the country enjoys. So it'll be really interesting to see how she plays uh, you know, her, whatever cards she decides to play in terms of pushing the conversation or even the policies toward the moderate. Larry Levy, Executive Dean of Suburban Studies at Hofstra, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you. I, it's great to be on with two people whose work I admire so much. Thank you. And we're going to wrap this up with Nicholas with one additional question, actually two, because Larry just put something else on the table, which may seem counterintuitive to a lot of listeners at first. A lot of our listeners know that the Democrats have had a supermajority in the New York State Legislature the last few years, meaning a veto-proof majority. And Larry just said the fact that they don't have that anymore, they have a majority, but they don't have a veto-proof majority, might make Hochul more powerful rather than make the Democratic governor less powerful. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that does make sense to me. I mean, uh, all these decisions now are being made by, you know, you know, the proverbial three men and now three, two of them women in the room. Um, and, you know, uh, one of those people now lost a little bit of their leverage, uh, which I think gives gives Hochul a little bit more. I think the other factor in the state Senate that's kind of interesting is that they, you know, will have lost some seats, not as many as they feared. Um, but the, the votes that they lost were largely kind of moderate members. So as a whole, the Democratic caucus in the Senate may at the same time become a little bit more progressive uh, on balance, which I don't know if that increases their leverage, but it does change their potentially change their positioning a little bit. So, you know, even though we're coming back, you know, they'll be coming back to Albany with uh, a trifecta of Democratic control. You know, yeah, I, I think things will uh, the dynamic will be a little, a bit little different. less. And, and remember, yeah. a little less leverage budget. from the left, uh, presumably, yeah. is yeah. really what you're saying. And, Assuming the governor is a little, also, but the governor is a little bit less to the left than the legislature. Correct, I, I think that's right. And and you know, just remember, last year, you know, was Hochul's first budget. It was, um, you know, she had not been in office even a year at that point. Didn't expect to be in office. It was an election year. You know, so I think it's fair to assume that even though she didn't have long coattails and this was not a all that convincing a victory. You know, she's likely to come back to that process with some more experience, with a bit more confidence, a bit more um, kind of certainty about uh, her position. So, you know, that that's another factor that maybe is less political, but might come to bear. So last question on that point. Could there be potentially some kind of grand bargain compromise on criminal justice where all of those things mentioned in the city article which probably don't affect street safety very much, parole of old people in prison, clemency issued by the governor in specific cases, and solitary confinement reform for people who are already behind bars. Those things for the reformers in exchange for a lower bar for jailing people charged with new crimes? Mm, it's a great question, Brian. And I, I mean, I'm not going to pretend to you know, know the answer on it. 
I think it's it's possible, but you know, as I talk to the legislative leaders, um, you know, who have been defending the the bail law in particular, I think they're pretty dug in and mm-hmm. feel you know that the conversation has been so warped uh, that they don't want to you know they don't want to capitulate to it. Um, I mean, they'll say we're happy to have conversations about it, but you know, if if it's going to all be on these terms that were set by you know the mayor of New York City and and Republican candidates that we don't agree with, that's kind of going to be a non-starter. So I'm not sure. I mean, I actually wonder if, you know, instead, you know, a lot of the early energy of this session in the budget is going to be about economic issues. Um, I mean, the state uh, is potentially, you know, headed towards a, a more uneven kind of revenue picture after having record revenues, thanks to the federal government and the strong stock market. You know, certainly voters uh, made clear, I think, on the campaign trail as well that you know the, the tax burden uh, is really weighing on them, as is inflation. Um, obviously, you know the affordability crisis here, particularly in New York City, but in the suburbs as well around housing, is going to be a really hot issue that that Albany was not able to address last year, particularly um, you know letting a subsidy program lapse that's that spurred a lot of development in the city. So you know I think we should expect as much, if not more debate about those issues right out of the gate well uh, it's well. pretty it's pretty ironic as we wrap this up if you look at the political media around the country the national media the dominant story is republicans say how did we mess up should we dump trump etc cetera, etc cetera. how did we not take a big majority in congress um republican hand-wringing and in new york of all places it's just the opposite so Nicholas Fandos has his finger on it as Metro political reporter for the New York Times. His apt headline, if Democrats lose the House, they may have New York to blame. Nicholas, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. It's great. Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Have a great weekend. Talk to you Monday.